If we look at the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus, as it's laid out for us in the book of Luke, we find that his life really is laid out into, uh, well, four sections if you take his whole life, three if you look at his ministry. Of course, the birth of Jesus and his childhood that's given to us a little bit. But in his ministry, there are basically three segments. There are what are known as what we will call the popular years. And that is from the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way up until about Luke chapter 9, verse 50. That's the section and segment that we're studying right now. Where Jesus is moving primarily up in the Galilee region. And he is extremely popular amongst the people up there. As we saw last week, there are multitudes and multitudes of those uh, that are following him um, everywhere that he goes in so much that tonight we'll see in our study that it's hard for him to even find a place to retreat and to rest just with the 12 to debrief for a little while. But after that, once we get to that point in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus is going to set his face to go now towards Jerusalem. And so some time has passed as we go through and look at all of these various scenes, and he now has in his mind's eye the transition from his Galilee ministry to what will be the final week of his ministry as he goes then into the region of Jerusalem where he will be uh, tried, tested by the scribes, Pharisees, and Herodians, and ultimately he will uh, be crucified and rise again. And so there's the popular years uh, in, in the first nine chapters, but then you have the transitional years in, that goes from about chapter 9, verse 50, all the way up through about the middle of chapter 19, and that's how long it takes Jesus to get from Galilee down into Jerusalem as he goes through and we read all and study all of those chapters, and then the, 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 you know, the remainder, of course, is the death and resurrection of Christ. But where we are and where we pick up is in the midst of really the popular years uh, of the ministry of Jesus Christ in the region of the Galilee. And so we left off with Jesus coming back from the area of Gadara where he was rejected and refused and politely asked to leave. And he did so. And now he returns back into the region, most likely of Capernaum, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we meet him as we look now at verse 40. And it says that it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, that's from Gadara, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. Now, if you can imagine for one minute being one of the 12 apostles that are with Jesus as he's going through this region, they don't have the luxury of knowing what happens next or seeing yet the reason why this man is coming and falling down at the feet of Jesus. What they see, and if you can put yourself in that scene, is very simply a man of the cloth, a man who would be very familiar with Jesus by this time, a man who had already formed an outward opinion about Jesus, but now it seems that the outward opinion that he had already formed is completely changed from what it was, and it is something totally different. We've seen that by this time, almost everyone in this region has formed an opinion about Jesus. Gladly received by the common people, 
but mostly rejected by those that served in positions of religious authority, which, of course, this man Jairus, who is a ruler of the synagogue, would be. We were told that they are offended at him. They were offended, first of all, at the claim that he made that a woman's sins or a man's sins could be forgiven. It says that all of the rulers and elders were gathered together in that place. And when they heard him say, man, thy sins be forgiven thee, it says that they found fault in their heart and said, who can forgive sins but God only? Jesus being evaluated by them and being rejected. Then after that, they saw him eating on the Sabbath day. And again, the rulers and the elders of the Jews, they questioned his behavior and not following in their tradition. And then, of course, in the very Capernaum synagogue of which Jairus is most likely the ruler, there was a man with a withered hand. And that day, those that were in charge and administrating over the religious affairs there, they looked at the man and they looked at Jesus to see what he would do with that man's ailment. And of course, as Jesus called him to stand in the midst and he said, stretch forth your hand, it says that they were all filled with madness because he had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath day. And so now this man who had formed a negative opinion about Jesus previously now comes to him and falls at his feet having just returned from this experience in Gadara and I'm certain that the apostles were flabbergasted, astonished. What in the world is going on? Well, why would a man who had rejected Jesus because it was a threat to his position or his prominence or his place within the nation, why would he now fall at Jesus' feet? Well, we're told in the following verse, it says, verse 42, for he had only one daughter about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. And so the reason why this man now comes to Jesus after this is because he finds himself in a position now that he is powerless in the face of the situation that he is facing. And he has come against something wherein his position and his influence and maybe even his money or the clout that he has within the nation or the influence that he might have amongst physicians and those that might do some good for this young girl, now all of that is absolutely impotent. But he remembers that there's a man who can call forth someone who's been withered in their hand from the time that they were an infant. A man who can heal diseases and it seems like he can stand up in the face of leprosy or in the very face of death itself and that he has power over those things. And this man now comes to a place where his position and his influence and his money and everything else that he is living for and rejecting Jesus for means nothing when he's faced with the prospect of losing his only daughter, 12 years old and full of life. And so he comes to Jesus. And so the first great lesson that we see very early on in this passage is this, is that God knows how to get the attention of the most hardened person and the most opposing person. And there are times that the most difficult things that someone will go through in their lives are the very things that God is using that he might ultimately show them mercy and that they might find themselves coming to him. Now the danger that exists in God drawing people through their tragedies is this, is that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And sometimes there's someone like a Jairus who will be faced with something that's bigger than they are and they'll fall at the feet of God and come to him for mercy and they'll find it, having a softened heart. But there are others that will 
clench their fist and stiffen their neck and harden their hearts yet further against God when they find themselves in that position and even blame God thinking that somehow they are unworthy or undeserving of the scenario or the scene that they are facing. But God had desire to have mercy upon Jairus and he knew how to meet him and he meets with him here. The amazing thing about this verse is what it tells us following uh, her condition. It says, but as he went, the people thronged him. He went. He didn't look at Jairus that day and say, hey, well, look at what we have here. Isn't this interesting? Remember the scene, the madness? Remember the laughter? Remember the scorn? And now you want me to come and help you? I don't think there's a greater revelation of the heart of God towards a hardened sinner than what we see in the heart and attitude and actions of Jesus here in that he went with Jairus to that place where he was. Well, it tells us that he went, but it says that the people thronged him. Now for one moment, put yourself in the shoes of this man, Jairus. This is emergency. This is 911. This is, I need you here ASAP. She is dying at this moment. And it says that the multitudes were so thick that they were thronging Jesus and he couldn't even get. And I can imagine the anxiety that was rising up within the heart of this man as they are going along the way. Well, it tells us here, interjecting through this, that in the multitude, verse 43, that a woman having an issue of blood, and that would be that she was hemorrhaging, the blood is issuing from her, for a span of 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed by any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue or her hemorrhage of blood stanched or stopped or was dried up. The moment that she comes behind him and reaches out her hand and touches just the very border of his garment... She's healed completely, immediately. And the other Gospels tells us that she felt it within herself and knew that it had happened. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee. And sayest thou, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. We can't even move through the streets here because of the multitude of people that are around you thronging you. It's insanity. And yet you're asking, who touched you? And Jesus said, somebody has touched me, for I perceive that virtue, the word virtue is the the Greek word dunamos, which is dynamite or where we get the word power from. So he perceived that healing power had issued forth from him and gone out. And it says that when the woman saw that she was not hid, now the other gospel again alludes to the fact that Jesus scanned the multitude and he set his eyes upon her. And she realized, as Jesus is saying the very words, who touched me, for I perceive that virtue went out, fastened with his eyes set upon her. He knew who it was, and it says that when she saw that she was not hidden, that she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he, Jesus, said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith has made thee whole. And so we see now Jesus touching this woman, or her touching him, and then him speaking to her and letting her hear the words, Daughter, be of good comfort, because uh, your faith has made you whole. So my question for Jesus and for this passage is, why in the world 
Did Jesus call her out in the middle of this? I mean, all of the multitudes touching him, she received the healing that she came for. She manifested the faith that was necessary to see this issue solved and and, and healed within her life. So why does Jesus call her out? And two reasons that are very important that we understand, and they are this. Number one is that the gift without the relationship robs God and it robs us. See, she came to Jesus for a very specific cause. She had a need. She was sick. Her issue of blood would cause great pain upon her life. Not only would it be financially and medically a burden, Mark's gospel tells us that not only was she um, nothing bettered, but it says that she was actually made worse and that she had spent all of her living. She had nothing left after all of this. But on top of that, because it was an issuing of blood, it would render her ceremonial unclean, which means that she wasn't in fellowship for the past 12 years of her life, an outcast put out of the synagogue. She would be rendered unclean by every man, including her husband, unable to lawfully touch her under the law of Moses. A woman who had been ostracized by society and cast out in every way. And she comes to Jesus now, and all of that is healed in one moment, and I'm certain that she was thrilled to be able to move on with her life. But God wasn't thrilled that she should move on with her life without knowing not just his power towards her healing, but his heart towards her person. And thus he looks at the young woman or the old woman. We don't even know how old she was. But he says to her, he says, daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Be of good comfort. And he assures her and lets her know that there is a relationship that she can have with God on the other side of all of this that is the thing that is of the greater value. The sweetest aspect of our faith in Christ is not what we receive from him, but it's who we receive in him. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize that. You realize that it's not about what he gives or what he does within my life that matters. That's all good. And praise the Lord for the things that he does. But the true value of our walk with him is who he is within our lives. And for Jesus to allow this woman to go her way without knowing his heart towards him and having that relationship would be for her robbery. She would go forth and she would still be empty inside. But the other reason why Jesus calls her out in this whole thing has to do with the man Jairus. Notice what happens in verse 50 or verse 49. It says that while he yet spake, Meaning that he's still saying these words to the woman. Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, fear not. Looking right at Jairus. Believe only and she shall be made whole. In other words, the same exact phrase that Jesus used with the woman with the issue of blood, he now turns to Jairus and says the same thing to her. He says, thy faith, your faith will make her whole, just as you saw in this woman. What does this tell us about this passage? Because amazingly, every time this story is told of Jairus' daughter, the story of the woman with the issue is told in the midst of it, just like this, as it happened. It must be important. It must be significant. So what's the significance? Here it is for you and me. It's that the testimony that you and I bear of what God has done in our life is of great importance for someone else. Never underestimate the power of the testimony that God has given to you. Now, amazingly, if you consider it, 
This woman and this man had almost nothing in common. If they passed each other in the street, they would have no reason to interact. He's a wealthy religious elite, a leader in government and an influential person. She's nobody. She has nothing. She's cast out and ostracized, a woman of poverty and of no means at all. There's no common ground between them. And you would think, what would this woman's testimony have to bear upon Jairus' need? But yet it had everything to do and bear upon Jairus' need because they did have something in common. They both had a 12-year issue. Hers was an issue of blood that needed to be healed by faith and was in Jesus And his was an issue of a 12-year-old girl who laid sick at his house and dying. And the same Jesus who healed this woman who was the least deserving in all of Israel, who healed her by the faith that she would express in his name, Jesus was now on his way to Jairus' house and he's declaring to him the same faith that you saw in this woman that healed her issue of blood is what will make your daughter well. So listen to the testimony that she bears and do not doubt but believe. And understand this, Christian, that you might think that your testimony of what God has done in your life means absolutely nothing to anybody. But understand this, that what God has done for you is something that he is willing to do and needing to do for someone else. And when someone else hears and sees what God has done and is doing in your life, it stirs up faith in them. So don't be ashamed of what God has done, but rather tell your testimony. Well, here's the turnout. Notice what happens next. It says that when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in except for Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And so the sixth of them, six of them go into her room and all wept and bewailed her. But he said, weep not. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. Now, I I, I picture this as kind of funny. I mean, these people kind of switch from weeping to mourning at the drop of a dime. I mean, Jesus just simply says that she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they go from tears to laughter that quickly. And it tells us why. It says because they, they knew what a dead person was. And now they hear Jesus declare that she's sleeping. And it brings them to a place of laughter. But notice what Jesus does. It says that he put them all out. And he took her by the hand and he called, saying, Maid, arise. Do you see what Jesus does there? He puts out those that would cast doubt upon the faith of Jairus. Understand that for you and I, that it is important that we cultivate and maintain and speak in faith. And that when there are people in our lives that are constantly a voice of pessimism and a voice of sarcasm and a voice of cynicism, understand that those people are faith killers in our walk and relationship with the Lord. Our faith is powerful things. And the words that we say mean more than just sounds coming out of our mouth. We've all heard the phrase, haven't we, that sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will ever hurt you. I don't think there's ever been a greater lie told than that phrase right there. Words are extremely powerful things, and they bear great influence and great worth upon us, whether it be in the positive or in the negative. And here are these people that are casting scorn upon the faith that Jesus is seeking to extract from Jairus. He puts them out. And sometimes in our lives, it's important that in surrounding ourselves with people that are encouraging us in our faith, 
that we put up barriers between those that cause us to doubt or that will scorn the things that we would believe in and that would uh, uh, hinder God in whatever way what it is. Well, notice what happens. It says that he took them all, or he put them out. He took her by the hand and he called saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again and she arose straightway and he commanded to give her food. And her parents were astonished but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Okay, we've put ourselves in the, the shoes of the apostles. We've put ourselves in, uh, in the shoes of, of the woman, of Jairus. Now put yourself in the shoes of these parents. And you are just blessed by having your daughter restored to you, raised from the dead. But the command that follows is Jesus says, don't tell anybody what I've just done for you. You go, oh, how could I not? And how would they not know anyways? And what am I supposed to do? I mean, am I supposed to go out here and just say, I don't know what happened. I mean, she was dead or sick or sleeping. I don't know what gives. Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anyone what has just been done for their daughter in this situation? We could speculate because it doesn't tell us, but I believe that the reason why Jesus did it and the sole reason why Jesus did it was to send the clear message to Jairus and to his wife that you owe me nothing in this and that I'm not doing this for what it will benefit me in return in terms of the reputation that it will afford me. But this is being done out of pure grace for you. Now, the typical response, I think if the normal, ordinary human being or physician had done this, they would say, hey, here's a stack of my business cards and I am in the process of building a ministry or a practice, and so if you would just hand these out to as many people as you could and let them know what great things have been done for you today, that would be absolutely wonderful. Or Jesus might look at Jairus and he would say, hey, do me a favor. Why don't you go tell your buddies in the synagogue about what happened here today? That would be typical, wouldn't it? That would be the common thing that we would want to do, but Jesus does exactly the opposite. He says, don't tell anyone. This work is a work of grace. It was done for you, and it was not done for me. I did not do this so that you could boast of me, but that you might receive from me. The Bible says that the the ways of God are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, are his ways above our ways. And I find that to be so true. And, And sometimes I wonder, and I say, God, your word tells us incredible things that you want to do within our lives and in our midst. Your word says, Lord, that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. But yet we look around the world today and we look and we see that the population of the world is vastly outgrowing the population of the church. And we see that not prevailing, but we certainly see weakness in the midst of the church. We look at the promises of God in in light of our own lives and we see the things that God says he wants to do. He says, I'll pour out my spirit upon him that is thirsty, just like water in a, in a desert place upon dry ground. And he says, ask me for the Holy Spirit and for rains in the times of latter rains. And yet we see that most of us, myself included, we walk around and we say, God, I feel like I'm experiencing just a fraction or just a portion of what you declare in your word that we are and what we're to be. And we have things in our lives that the promises of God afford us answers and solutions to. And yet we hold those things before God and so often we see that those things are untouched or unhealed or unfixed or unaddressed in whatever way that it is. And we look at God and sometimes we say, God, what is it? Because we know that it would be nothing with you to do the things that you said. You spoke light and and matter into existence and it was nothing with you to do it. 
You said stretch out your hand and the hand was outstretched. You spoke the leprosy out of people's lives. You raised the dead. You caused earthquakes to happen. You, the word that you speak comes to pass no matter what. So why is it, Lord, that so often we don't see the things happening in our lives that we want to? And here's what I think that the reason is. Is that because God in his wisdom and in his ways would prefer silence and inaction over the manifesting of his power if the manifesting of his power is going to send the wrong message concerning his person. In other words, if what God is going to do within our lives is going to lead us to a wrong conclusion about his nature, or in some way it's going to be used within our lives to lead other people to a wrong conclusion about his nature, then he would rather wait and hold off than manifest the power that he so easily could. See, if God does something in my life, whether it be an an anointing that I'm asking for or a healing that I'm seeking or a move in my family or something along those lines, and then he does it, and I, in my foolishness, put off that, okay, well, God, you did this in my life because I prayed so earnestly or because I was so worthy of it or because I put so much time in following you and in serving you that I had so much stored up in my spiritual account, Lord, that you did it for me. Or if God pours out his Holy Spirit upon a church, if God were to pour out his Spirit upon our church in such a way that it was such a genuine revival that there was repentance and faith and there was a turning of our hearts completely to God and it was so genuine and real and there was real salvation and people were coming to him in ways that we couldn't even imagine. If God were to do that and yet we were to take that which he does and in some way put our church up on a pedestal and say, well, we're better than other churches and that's why God did this. Because he likes our form, or he likes our preaching, or because we, we somehow have the privilege, or, or he likes what we've done with the place. And so God, now he's going to pour out on us. Or if in some way even people from another church are going to look in and say, well, we need to write an article about that church. We need to see what they're doing over there. and We need to do what they're doing, because that's where the Spirit's really pouring out. Then God's not going to do that, because it's going to misrepresent who he is, and it misrepresents the why behind the what of what he does. Why does God pour out upon a life or upon a church or upon anything? Do you know why? Grace. Because he is merciful, because he is good, and because he is kind to the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. And when our hearts are contrite and in a place where we can say, God, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with you. And God, all the glory for what you do belongs to you and there's nothing in us that's of any worth or that could ever boast of anything that you do then God is so willing to fulfill the promises of his word because what he's doing is testifying to his character and his nature and it's being given to his glory. And so God looks at Jairus and he says, listen, do me a favor. This wasn't done for me. This wasn't done so that my ministry could be built up. It wasn't done to propagate the revival that's taking place in Capernaum. I'm doing this for you. That you might know that though you have been an antagonist to me, that is not my heart towards you or your family. And I don't know what this did in the heart and in the mind of Jairus, but I'm certain it had an eternal impact upon him. Well, it says in chapter 9 that then he called his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And then he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then he said unto them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor script, that's a bag, purse, neither bread nor money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house you enter into, there abide and from there depart. 
And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. So now he calls the 12 to him. And what he does is he sends out six teams, two by two, to expand the ministry that he had been doing as one team of 13 walking around with him. And I find such grace in this, that God was willing to share the ministry and the privilege of serving God and expanding the kingdom message with his disciples. We're told that he did a few things that are important here to understand. First of all, he called them. Second of all, he equipped them. He gave them the power and the authority to preach and to heal where they went. He gave them a calling and equipping, and then he sent them to preach and to heal, backing up the preaching that they were giving. Now, that's an incredible combination of things, and it is absolutely necessary for anyone that will step out and serve God. A calling, an equipping, and a sending. But notice that it doesn't stop there. You would think that it would. You would think that would be enough, but it's not. He adds to it, and he also gives to them then instructions. See, if anyone is going to do anything for Christ within the world, the Bible says that we are ambassadors for him. And what an ambassador does is that he represents the kingdom or the king of the kingdom that he is representing. He doesn't represent himself. And so Jesus gives them instructions because their behavior is either going to rightly represent his kingdom and his person, or it's going to mar the testimony of his kingdom and his person. And so the character and the attitude and the conduct of those that go out is equally important to the calling, the equipping, and the sending. Well, what is the instruction that he gives to them? The first thing is that he wants them to walk in simplicity. Don't go there with a whole caravan of people. Don't carry luggage with you and baggage and a ton of money and a souvenir suitcase extra so that you can grab things in every place that you go. Keep it light and simple. You'll be able to travel fast and you'll be able to travel far. The second thing he tells them is to be content wherever you go. When you get to a place in a village and you enter into a house, don't move around and say, well, this isn't the ideal place or I got an offer to go somewhere and stay with the doctor and the accommodations are that much better. He says, don't do that. Because if you do that, then it's going to mar the testimony of your purpose and the motive behind what you're doing. And then third, he says, if they refuse you in the place that you go, then don't even take so much as a speck of dust from that town with you when you leave. Sometimes when people reject the gospel, they think that somehow by throwing money or throwing a gift at a ministry, it will absolve them, or at least it will undo the burden that's upon their conscience for rejecting. What Jesus is saying is, listen, don't receive anything from an unbeliever in a way that will let their conscience off the hook for the rejection that they are issuing. It's so important. Remember when Abraham was met by the king of Sodom after the slaughter of the kings? Abraham had just worshipped Melchizedek and had communion with God himself. And, and, and Melch- or, uh, the king of Sodom came to Abram and he said, Hey, listen, you keep the stuff, all the goods, the spoils from the war, but give me the people. I want the souls. You keep the stuff. And Abraham looked at him and he says, I will not take not one lace of a shoe from you, lest at any time you should say, I made Abraham rich. And he walked away that day and he gave up everything that he could have taken rightfully as the spoils of that war because of the testimony that it left in the heart of the king of Sodom. And that's the mindset that we're to have. 
is not to take anything from someone who rejects that they would be let off the hook within their mind. And so it says that they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him. Herod was the Tetrarch over the Galilee region, the Roman-appointed man that was uh, in charge there. And he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead and of some that Elijah had appeared and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this of whom I hear such things? And it says that he desired to see him. Now notice the contrast. Jesus is walking throughout all the towns and villages, going to these places to reach them. And here's a man who desires to see Jesus and Jesus doesn't go to him. In fact, Herod will not see Jesus until the last week of Jesus' life, when Jesus will stand before him uh, in that day. And we see an incredible uh, um, just thing in the wisdom of God here and not bringing Jesus to Herod at this time, this evil man uh, who was a God uh, rejecter. And it says that the apostles, when they were returned, verse 10, told him all that they had done. And so he took them and he went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city that's called Bethsaida. And that was also along the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northeast part of the sea, if you can kind of picture that in your mind. And it really was kind of a deserted place. It wasn't near to any city, any major place at all. Uh, It was just kind of a a farm town um, place. And so it says that the people, when they knew it, they followed him and he received them. And he spoke unto them of the kingdom of God, and he healed them that had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve. Remember remember us, Jesus? Remember the retreat that we're supposed to be on? Remember the deserted place you brought us to to rest after the grueling season of ministry and going from town to town? It says, they came to him, and they said unto him, send the multitude away that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a desert place. Do you hear the sarcasm dripping from the voice? Lord, remember the desert place. Here we are. But he said unto them, give you them to eat. And they said, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat or buy food for all this people. Lord, do you want us to use the funds that have been saved up to feed a multitude of people? Philip said in John's gospel that 200 pence, 200 days wages wouldn't be enough to provide food for all the people that were there. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down by 50s in a company. So 100 groups of 50. How long did that take? Can you imagine? I mean, imagine being those 12 and be like, all right, come on over here. Counting them out. And this, all right, there, no, there's 52. Two of you guys come over here. And you, and, and you could just imagine there's 100 groups of 50. But inside they're thinking, what in the world are we doing this for? <laughs> We've got no food. <laughs> you know, talk about clouds without water. Talk about, you know, boasting of a false gift. Lord, we don't have anything to give these people. We're putting them in, in, in groups of 50 to sit down. But it says that they did so. And they made them all sit down. And then Jesus took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them. And he broke. And then he gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. And the word is glutted. They were filled to gluttony. And there was taken up of the fragments that remained to them now 12 baskets worth. 
Now this here, this passage, contains one of the most well-known incidences within the ministry of Jesus. I would say that most people that hear about Jesus for the first time probably hear about this story of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes and the feeding of this 5,000. Not only is it the most common story because of the magnitude of it and how big it is, but it is also repeated in all four Gospels. It means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of them knowing that it was already recorded and written down, were led and inspired by the Spirit of God to write it down again so that we would have it four times within the Bible. In fact, probably there's some of you that are sitting here right now saying, this is a great time for me to check Facebook. Because I know this story. I've heard it talked about. I could quote it without looking at it. I know it. But understand this. That if God goes through the trouble to put something in the word of God four times so that every time we read a gospel, we are put face to face with it again. And that not only that, but that Jesus repeated the miracle a second time with 4,000 people and Matthew and Mark both repeated that. So six times the miracle of the loaves and the fishes is recorded for us and the same exact thing happens in both instances. And if God does that, then it's because God knows that we need to see this four, five, or six times because of the message that it contains. So what's the message that it contains? What does God want us to glean and to gain from seeing this here? And here it is, listen. That our resources in our hands can only go as far as our resources allow. But our resources in God's hands can always go as far as God allows. And what we know about God is that there's absolutely no limit to what he can do with anything. That if he can create everything that is out of nothing, then what can't he do with what we would bring and put within his hand? Also, this passage teaches us, That when we allow God to govern the way that we use the things that we have, there's always enough left over. Notice that they started with just five loaves of bread and two fish. But at the outcome, there's a full basket full of fragments for each of the disciples that have labored and served throughout this time. Remember the retreat they wanted? They got it. They got a full meal, every single one of them, and then more to abound. And that's true for you and I as well, that when we use the resources that we have, by the direction of the Spirit of God, yielded to his hand, there's always going to be enough left over for us, and God will always make sure of that, and he wanted us to understand that. And that if God can do this, what we see here, with the least of our resources, then what could he do if everything that we have is continually placed within his hand? Not just our food or our money, but what about our time and our resources? How much of our lives are surrendered completely into the hand of God so that he would be able to do whatever it is that he wants to do within our lives. And what would our lives look like if every part of our lives were surrendered into his hand? The point is this, is that everything we have must be given back to him and placed within his hand. And then we'll see what God can do with our lives and with our resources. Well, they go from there, and it says that, um, oh goodness, verse 18. It says that it came to pass as he was alone praying, that his disciples were alone with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? Now this instance happens much later. Jesus travels from the region of Bethsaida, and by the time he says this, according to Matthew, he's way up in the region of Tel Dan, in the northern part, at the base of Mount Hermon. And he asks them this question. He says, Who do the people say that I am? 
And so they answered, and they said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering, said, You are the Christ of God. Now by this time, everybody that was in that Israel region and even the surroundings, all of them had an opinion of who Jesus was. And that's much like it is today. I mean, there's probably almost no one on planet Earth today that doesn't have some opinion about who Jesus is. And so Jesus asks them the question. I don't think that Jesus was having a moment of self-interest or self-worth, a lack of self-worth where he was like, oh, you know what, I'm really wondering how my popular sentiment is and how are my numbers in the polls and what are people thinking about me in these days? And let me just ask these guys. They've been out and about and listening and I'd really like some good feedback. I'm kind of discouraged. No, no. It tells us that Jesus was praying. And then he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? Why would Jesus ask them this question? I don't believe it was just so that he could hear their answer or teach them based on their answer. I believe primarily it was to set the record straight within their own minds. He wanted to know what they thought about who he was and whether they gave credence to the things that they heard or if they yet understood who he was. And his desire was to reveal to them who he was as he does within the passage. And so they say, who do, or he says, who do you say that I am? After they give their various answers and they say, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus um, blesses that in it. Now listen, it doesn't matter what people say about Jesus or what their opinions are. What matters is who he truly is. And the answer to who Jesus is, is that he is the Christ of God. The Messiah, the Savior, the substitutionary atonement, the one who is given to be a ransom for the sins of the world and the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's who Jesus is. And anything else that he does or what he does within our lives is immaterial to that one thing. And if he does and is everything else in our lives, then it is nothing if he is not that. He is the Savior. And there is no other name. It's his name alone. And so Jesus then tells them, and I love this at the end of the passage, he's doing this a lot this season of his life, verse 21. It says that he straightly or strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no man this thing. Now think about how crazy that is. He already sent them out two by two to preach the kingdom, but yet he's saying, you know I'm the Christ, but I want you to keep that to yourselves for a while. Why would Jesus do this knowing that now they know who he is, that he is the Messiah? Here's the reason. Because the Jewish idea behind who the Messiah was and what he came to do at that time was totally different than what Jesus came to do at this time. They believed that the Messiah would come and that he would be a political ruler, that he would throw off the yoke of the Roman rule that was over Israel at that time, that he would set up the kingdom that David had established and he would be the one that would come and sit upon David's throne and rule with a rod of iron that all nations would come and bow down. And someday, that's exactly what he'll be. But in his first coming, he came to die on a cross in Jerusalem. And that was something that they just didn't get. They didn't understand it yet. And so should they publish abroad the Christ, the Messiah, then it would be a stumbling block because they didn't yet understand the, 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 the harmony between the first and the second coming of Christ. So notice what he says to them in verse 22. He said to them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and of the scribes and be slain and be raised again the third day. Now we know from Matthew's gospel that they didn't understand this at all. That when Jesus said this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and say, Master, what are you talking about? 
This isn't, this isn't any way to speak. You're trying to build a ministry and you're talking about crucifixion and torturous death and rejection by the scribes. That's not faith, Jesus. <laughs> Funny, right? Can you imagine talking to Jesus that way? And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus says this to all of them with Peter standing before him, verse 23. It says that he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And what this is, is this is the terms of what it costs to follow Jesus. That if you and I are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then this is the terms that's at the top of the contract. He says, if you want to follow me, then primarily, number one, is that you will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after what I tell you to do. That's what it is that you're called to do. The denial of self, even to the cross, on a daily basis. A.W. Tozer said this about our transition from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. Listen carefully. It's just a a sentence or two, but listen to the words. He says, For the world into which we pass is the world of God's sovereign will, where the will of man cannot come, or if it comes, it comes as a servant and not as Lord. And, And what that means and what Jesus is saying, the two are the same, is that the self life and the Christ life that he desires to live through us are so diametrically opposed to one another that you cannot possibly persist living in self-will or in an absence of self-denial and ultimately find yourself in a place where you're pleasing God. Because self will never go where God will lead a life. It's just not within the will of man. And thus, to follow him, it must be laid down. Well, the rationale that's given behind the reason, then, is given to us in verse 24. He says, For whosoever will save his life will lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. The rationale is that he ordains life, and he's the one that leads life, But life will never be accidentally stumbled upon by our just simply trying to find it and what it is. That if we seek to save our lives in some ways, okay, God, this is is what's important to me, and so you can have this much, but this part's my plan, and I know I've gone this way until I met you, but now I've met you, but I want to keep and hang on to this. He says, no, 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 listen. If you try to hold on to one part of the controls, or you grab the steering wheel in some way, and you'll, as long as I'm going the way you want to go, you're into it. But if I start to go a direction that you don't want to go, then you grab the wheel and you pull it. It's not going to work. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you'll relinquish control completely, then you're going to find what life is all about. And that's always the way it is within the kingdom of God. And any one of us that have been walking with him for any period of time, we can look at where we began when he got a hold of our lives and we can see where we are today and we can realize very quickly that there's absolutely no way that we could have led ourselves the way that he has led us for all these years. And if you can, then I'm sorry for you because he never allows any one of us to be able to figure out how he's going to lead within our lives. The great picture is in Ezekiel chapter 47 where there's a river that Ezekiel sees a vision of that comes out of the temple of God in heaven. And an angel takes Ezekiel by the hand and he leads him through the river at various depths. He first leads him into the river deep enough to cover his feet and then a second time to his knees and then a third time to his waist. And each time Ezekiel, he gets into the river, he walks around and he comes back out. 
But ultimately, the angel brings him to a fourth point. And Ezekiel looks at the waters and he says, but these waters are deep. And it's a water that must be swam in. And he realized there that day that if he jumps into the river right here, then I'm no longer going to have control over where I go with my life. That once I commit myself to jump into you, God, at this depth and at this level, then wherever the river goes, that's where I go. And if I don't like where the river goes, I don't have choice anymore to get out and walk a different direction. And then God, it says that the angel took Ezekiel and he brought him back to the, pres- to, the, to the brink, to the beginning, and he said, do you understand these things? And the picture for you and I and what Jesus is calling us to here is he holds before us a precipice. And beneath every one of us, there is a river. And what he declares as he looks at us is he says, I am the Christ. I am the Savior. I am the one who died for your sins, that knows the number of hairs that are on your head, who has more thoughts towards you than the number of grains of sand that are on the seashore. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That no weapon that's formed against you will prosper and I will keep you as the apple of my eye and I will enlarge your steps under your feet and I know what it is that I'm doing in your life. But I hold before you a river and my call to you is do you trust me enough that no longer will you have control over your own life but here you stand this day and you will say, God, I will go where you go And I'll go where you lead and where your river goes. That's where my life will go. And Lord, if that's a totally different direction than where I would take my own life, then God, that's where I'm going to go because you're worthy in who you are to have my total and absolute obedience. That's the life that we've been called into. Not to the laying down of our joy, but to the receiving of the greater life that he gives. And that's what Jesus calls us to. We'll stop there tonight. We'll pick up and we were supposed to get further, but we didn't. So the worship team can come at this time. But my question as we close is this. Love it when this happens. Who does your life say that Jesus is? Perhaps like Jairus. You've rejected him in your past, but you've come to him when you've had a need, something that's too great for you. Not necessarily because of who he is or what he represents, but because of something that's too big for you. That's okay. He says, come as you are. Does your life say, like the woman's, that I want his power, but I'm not sure if I want the relationship. I want God's favor in my life, and I want the benefits, and I want the promises, but I don't know about the whole prayer part. I don't know about seeking him daily and being filled with him and being surrendered to his will. Or perhaps like those who reported to the apostles who they thought Jesus was. You say, well, Jesus was an influential person. Or perhaps he was powerful. There was something to his teachings. He was a great teacher and he's described to be a prophet. But in terms of what he is in my life, he's none of those things. Who is Jesus to you? Or is he the Christ of God? The one who gave his own life and poured out his blood upon a cross so that your sins could be laid upon him and his righteousness could be laid upon you. Who is Jesus to you? Father, we thank you tonight for this word. And we ask, Lord, we know that that's the intention of this text is that we would see our lives through its lens and that we might come to a place, Lord, where we recognize and realize who you are and who you're calling us to be. 
And so it's our prayer and desire tonight, O Lord, that we would see you for who you are, that we would experience and know you, that, Lord, you would make adjustments to every motive we've ever had, every concept we've ever had, every conception, and that, Lord, you would show us personally, individually, who you are, Lord. Jesus, we want to know you. Lord, there's nothing worth anything in this world of having or experiencing other than having you and knowing you, Lord. You're the everlasting God. You're the one who was before time and the one who will be forever and all of eternity. You're the one who set the worlds into motion. You're the one who made man upon the earth. And then gave your son to redeem us from our sins. And Lord, you're the great and mighty God. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. And tonight, Lord, it's just our desire to sit before you and to be filled with you again. Lord, show us who you are. Pour out your Holy Spirit within us, Lord. Give us a vision of Jesus. Lord, show us where we've put ourselves first. Show us, Lord, where we've played the hypocrite and we've played a mask. And, Lord, even to your face, Lord, we've given you lip service. We've sung songs to you, Lord, and prayed token prayers and confessed you in ways. But, Lord, our lives are so far from what you want. Lord, we repent tonight. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would fall upon this place. That you would fall upon our hearts that you would bring us back to our first and only love. That you would show us, Lord, why you made us and what really matters in the days that we live in. And that you draw us to your purpose for each one of us. So God, have your way. Have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's all stand.